Today, you'll hear the views and ideas of our podcast guests. We're eager to showcase their expertise and provide a platform for their views, but they may not always reflect or align with the views of the positive effect or the MAP Center for Urban Health Solutions. Welcome to Podcast. We are created by and for people living with HIV. On each episode, we explore what it means to be Pause. We challenge the status quo and we share stories that matter to us. I'm James Watson and I'm HIV positive. If you're living with HIV, listen up. This should be an AIDS-free world. We don't need a cure. We don't need to wait for a vaccine. We could decrease the burden of HIV AIDS globally by greater than 90% during our lifetime with nothing much more than we already have. And we're not going to do this because we don't want to. The documentary film titled Undetectable, How Stigma Has Gone Viral in the Fight Against HIV is being released today, World AIDS Day 2021. And I had the good fortune of sitting down with the director and some of the key cast members to discuss the film and unpack some of the key issues. This film is so beautifully crafted and it does a number of things really well. It takes a hard look at the early history of HIV and AIDS in North America and highlights the hysteria and misinformation and stigma that has surrounded HIV since it was identified and of course, initially associated with gay men in the early 80s. And it also, and rather effectively, critiques and rattles the cage of the gatekeepers that according to the film have stopped the world from becoming HIV and AIDS free. I was so taken in by this documentary. It really resonated with my experience and it's not everybody's experience, but as a gay white man of a certain age living with HIV, it shook me. And the film is still deeply relatable to all. Facts are facts and stigma is stigma. You know, I laughed, I cried, I raged. And I was inspired and reinvigorated by the resilience of my HIV positive brothers and sisters. And so grateful to our superhero allies who continue to tirelessly advocate for our cause. My guests today are Laura O'Grady, the director and producer of the film, and three of the key cast members, including the extraordinary visual artist and community advocate, Tico Kerr. If you don't know Tico's work, you have to Google him. It's amazing. We will also hear from Mark Randall, a person living with HIV, a passionate HIV advocate, activist, and educator, and the internationally renowned Dr. Julio Montaner, a founding member of the BC Center for Excellence in HIV and AIDS, whose landmark treatment as prevention program and antiretroviral drug trials have helped transform HIV and AIDS from a death sentence to a livable chronic condition. We have got a great show for you today, folks. Let's get into it. So Tika and Laura, welcome to Podcast. Thank you for having us. You know, I'm really excited about this film. It is such a beautifully crafted, powerful and important piece of work. And, and I wonder, how did this film come about? Um, several years ago, I was doing a different piece on a young man who actually had been in conversion therapy. He was raised in a traditional Christian home. And uh, he actually worked at an HIV outreach center in, in a small town in Alberta, actually. 
And I asked him, you know, other than, you know, you identifying queer, why would you want to do this sort of work within your community? And he stated to me that he had never heard of HIV AIDS until he came out. And he was 26 at the time. Wow. So for me, who's, you know, slightly older than 26, I was shocked and stunned and a little angry, not at him, but certainly at the situation that this really important history was being lost so quickly within a generation and realized that that it wasn't being taught in schools, that it wasn't being spoken about, that it's not necessarily until somewhat recently been covered in, in mass market media. And so I thought, well, hopefully I can use my skill set to try to talk about you know, the past and, and where we are. And as we went into development with TELUS, um, who were great to support us from the very onset, like several years ago prior to COVID, that I realized that there's lots of great films that talk about the past and the tragedies uh, of a generation lost. But what we could really talk about and hopefully amplify is the good news of today, but why that is not being talked about more. And my idea was that it's rooted in the stigma of HIV that was there from the onset of the North American diagnosis. Right. And Tico, how did you get involved in the film and why was it important for you to participate? Well, I got involved uh, by getting a, a cold call from Laura introducing herself and um, <laughs> saying that she was interested in um, picking my brain about perhaps participating in the film. HIV is, it has always been incredibly relevant um, in a timeline for me. I was coming out in high school, which is when uh, Stonewall happened. And so I kind of rode the crest of um, the development in the, um, in the, especially the HIV epidemic that coordinated with my own sexuality. And I realized uh, very much like Laura, that we have an opportunity to talk about things. And especially with the insight of being firsthand, being there, fighting for the drugs, fighting for a clearer voice, kind of a measured political response and so on. And I was thrilled to jump on board. Right. And you share in the film, you share some of your personal journey with HIV and it's masterfully interwoven with your creative journey. And you're also the film's art director. Can you tell us how your journey with HIV and art intertwine? To be perfectly honest, James, uh, HIV has been completely instrumental in um, my creative life. When I haven't been well, it's affected my work in a very negative way. I don't have the energy to actually go into the studio and get my work done. And when I've had the good fortune of getting new drugs that have just been um, released onto the market and my health picks up again, all of a sudden I, I'm like an 18-year-old again and I've got this surge of, of health. So uh, looking back at my work over the past 35 years or so, I can see an indelible trend that's coordinated between the HIV and my creative output. Now, Laura, is the film you started making is that the film you ended up making? Um, in some ways, yes. Uh, you know, I had a dream of Tico joining our team and, and being able to address some of the archival and visual style of the film. And I really lucked out there and uh, on our team lucked out. We had some challenges, as everyone listening 
to this has had in their life regarding the impact of COVID. So unfortunately, we did lose a character or two, but what we realized um, and what I was fortunate enough to talk through with Tico was the parallels of COVID. So we kind of leaned a little harder into archive because our shooting was somewhat inhibited. We were supposed to start shooting the week that Vancouver locked down in March of 2019 right. for the principal photography of the film. And so that was before vaccines, of course, and shooting with immunocompromised communities. Uh, we had to be very careful and take our time and pull back on some of the shooting. And then we looked more at archive and the parallels, I, we don't state it outright, but the parallels are there. And it was an interesting turn of events that I think actually makes the film more relatable to those who don't live within the HIV community. And did you, like when you started out making the film, were you aware of the like treatment as prevention and, and, and undetectable equals untransmittable and those sorts of issues? No, I'm, I'm you know, kind of embarrassed to say that even though our family, my family lost a close friend of my mother's to HIV AIDS prior to 1996, 97, I did not know the Canadian impact of the heart cocktail. I did not know the amazing revelations of U equals U. That came through the research of development and um, the BC Center for Excellence in HIV AIDS really allowing me to, to do that research, to connecting me to their teams that have proven that treatment as prevention does work. And so uh, I'm very grateful to everyone who allowed me to learn <laughs> at the footsteps of their, of their amazing work over you know years and years and years, and, and hopefully we can amplify their voices. And is there something that surprised you along the way while you were making the film? Um, it was actually surprised me, well, how clearly they demonstrated treatment as prevention works. That's amazing. Right surprised me in the fact that when I mentioned this film to individuals who don't live within the HIV community or even in the LGBTQ community, how few people know about it, how yeah. few people know about it within the LGBTQ community, actually. Uh, people within our team yeah. uh, who identify as such didn't know about it. And then when we show the film, everybody's like, everybody should know this. Everybody should know this film. <laughs> right. So I, to me, you know, educating the common public is to try to demystify and destigmatize an HIV diagnosis, and hopefully, you know, it hel it's helpful in that way. But right. for like, it was really interesting to me on how few people know of of the amazing accomplishments of Canadian scientists, of Dr. Julio Montaner. He has a stamp, like he's on a stamp. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, how not widely publicized or known it is within our society. I found that very surprising. Yeah. So I want to play a clip right now from Tico. I'm considered to be undetectable. It's impossible for me now to transmit HIV to anyone else. This is the miracle that we've all been waiting for. We know how to end HIV AIDS. We finally have the way. We just don't have the will to get there. So Tico, the film's messaging and the science behind U equals U and treatment as prevention is really compelling. So why do you think there's been such a slow uptake among the general public? 
I have a feeling that these issues regarding HIV uh, are victim of our own success. On one hand, uh, 10 or 20 years ago, it was a, it was a situation where people were, were dying and, and dropping like flies. And then now you have someone such as myself coming out and demonstrating that I can have a pretty much a normal life as long as I comply with the medications, which I'm happy to do. I have a feeling in a lot of people's minds, uh, they see that as HIV is over. I think also that obviously we don't have political will that lasts longer than one election cycle or two election cycles, so that um, policy doesn't have a, a tendency to outlive the imperative uh, measures that need to be taken in controlling an epidemic like HIV. Yeah, I always thought, you know, as a person living with HIV myself, I always thought, okay, U equals U, that's going to that's gonna sort it, right? And like you say, it's the miracle we all hope for. And then you're left wondering, like, what happened, you know? Uh, what role do you think that HIV stigma plays into all of this? Well, I, in the discussion of HIV, I think it's all predicated on the context, like where you live. We happen to be living in uh, a very progressive urban environment where um, people are perhaps more liberal in their thinking and accepting and so on and so forth. But that isn't always the case. And in rural communities and in communities where um, things are more constricted socially uh, in a conservative way, then all of a sudden we come into all kinds of new barriers when it comes to um, acceptance, stigma, self-loathing, all the things that uh, complicate the whole issues to get people healthy. Right. So, Laura, what, what do you want people to feel after seeing this film? What impact do you hope the film will have? Well, I, you know, for me, it, it's a good news story. <laughs> it's a great news story, you know, and I'm coming late to the game. Like, this has been a great news story for six, seven, you know, years or what have you, when treatment as prevention was proven. And so I really would love for people to understand that HIV you know, I just saw something on pop culture the other day where they mentioned HIV and a terminal diagnosis that I really want people to understand that that is no longer the case. You know, please ma stop ma making those broad comments that are completely factually inaccurate to have responsibility for what you're saying and to allow individuals living with HIV to feel comfortable and open about living with the diagnosis. So the stigma is hopefully dissipates and um, we can get these easily accessible, you know, ARVs to a lot of our pop that are accessible to our population now, to all of the population and to realize what is factually true that in our generation, we could end HIV AIDS if as Tico says in the film, the political will is there and the community will is there. What an amazing human accomplishment to be able to do this within a lifetime. We just need the will to do it. And it comes from the common person understanding that this is possible, this is doable, and we need to express to our leaders globally and nationally that this is a priority. Yeah. The film really feels to me like a call to action in many ways. Like you said, this, that statement, Canada has a solution to end HIV infections and stop the worldwide HIV or AIDS epidemic. I mean, that's, that's quite a statement. 
So, Tico, what action can we take? Yes, we can reach out to politicians. What else can we do? Well, I think I think it's also imperative to remember that there's a lot of countries around the world where the stigma has modified or amplified into anti-homosexual death crimes, all that sort of thing. So the conversations need to be wider than what's happening just uh, within our own country. In the United Nations, if, if we're now starting to take countries to task on other issues, why not to task on uh, human rights issues that delegitimize the stigma that's uh, perpetuating just still rampant uh, murder and death by uh, HIV because people aren't getting the drugs. Right. Now, what kind of distribution, like what's next for the film, Laura? Mm, yeah, so it, um, you know, we're going to be doing some community screenings, and mm-hmm. which is amazing through, through Canada. And then on December 1st, it releases wide thanks to our good friends at TELUS on YouTube mm-hmm. and it can be shared and sent viewed commented on around the world and uh, you know we have some traditional media ideas uh, to get the film into as many eyes and ears as possible but yeah it is not it is not gated to whether or not you have TELUS optic in the west or what have you everybody can see it um, it's only 43 minutes so hopefully people will watch it and uh all the way to the end and spread the message of you equals you and treatment as prevention. Well, that's great. It's a wonderful film. I, uh, I can't say uh, enough good things about it. So I encourage everybody to, to watch it. After I met with Tico and Laura, I wanted to hear more about what it was like when the new drugs, the highly active antiretroviral therapy was first introduced. What was it like being given that kind of, that, that new lease on life? This type of lived experience is a teaching moment for all of us. It can't be forgotten. So let's turn our attention to Mark Randall, a cast member in the film and an HIV activist and educator. Well, hello, Mark. Welcome to PauseCast. Well, good, good morning, good afternoon. I guess it's afternoon where I am now, so thanks for having me. Now, I want to play a clip from the film uh, and have you reflect on that time period, if you don't mind. Okay. I got a phone call from the clinic saying, hey, this we've got this new clinical trial drug. It was right after the um, um, the Vancouver AIDS conference had happened. So um, I got a phone call from the clinic um, asking if I was interested. I said, absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm being told to plan my end. I think I started taking medications in September. My mother had come out that summer um, and had seen me at my worst. By November, I called my mother and I told her I weighed 176 pounds. It was profound. Um, I was walking my dog. I was shoveling my sidewalk. I was able to climb my stairs and use my bathroom upstairs for the first time in a year. She said she wouldn't believe me till she saw me. Um, So when I flew home in December, I walked right past her in the airport and she didn't even see me. She was looking for the kid she saw in September. And didn't even recognize the son she saw in November. 
So I turned around in the airport and said, what? I gained a few pounds, you don't even recognize me. And uh, she just, she just, she just cried. She just cried. Gosh, Mark. This story is so moving. And, and, I, and I bet there's lots of stories from that time period out there like this. Um, and I wonder, how did it make you feel hearing that, that clip again? Well, uh, my voice will be off, clearly. And um, there's no tissue in front of me, so my eyes are going to be a little glossy. I'm glad we're not recording this live for a camera. It's hard. It was, uh, it was, it was just so surreal to go from from preparing myself to actually say goodbye, like doing all those creepy, terrible things, like picking on a coffin and picking up flowers and music and making a list of who could come and clearly making a list of who wasn't welcome. Uh, my control issues right to the end. <laughs> to, 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 to be able to actually believe in the possibility that, that I could still be around and have the opportunity to be with my family probably that I had denied myself out of that fear of disclosing to them my HIV status and that what their response would have been. Um, so I kind of really like screwed myself out of a good 10 years, maybe, with my family keeping this horrible secret and distance. And then um, being able to have the opportunity to have time with both sides of my family again, my um, my divorced folks, and be able to to be Mark Randall, HIV positive, your son. Here I am. This is what I am. How, what do you think of me now? Right. Right. <laughs> um, and because this is what you get, and 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 to be blessed with that. And I keep using the term blessed. I'm not really a religious God guy, but it's a gift. It's 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 mm-hmm. like HIV was a backhanded gift to begin with, but to have the response from this kind of treatment and to be able to walk past my mother and have her not see me, that that's celebratory, while at the t- same time sobering um, because so many people didn't benefit from those in time. Well, you know, the documentary does a really great job of exposing the historical stigma and misinformation around HIV, but it also brings to light that life-changing impact of the medication of the, the of heart, the highly active antiretroviral therapy. Yeah, I think the right. doctor called it the Lazarus effect. <laughs> right. he, goes, he, he just couldn't believe that he was watching patients that he was prepared to say goodbye to standing up and walking out of his office three months later. He just couldn't believe what he was saying. It's incredible. I mean, that transformation, uh, you know, it's the ultimate good news story, right? And 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 your lived experience in, through that is a real, is a teaching moment. You know, you're living proof that getting on treatment will save your life. Absolutely. I had a whole conversation in a training I gave today about that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Get tested, know your status, get on treatment. Right. Oh. <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. I know that my treatment works that I'm now, my virus is at a level that's undetectable. And because my virus is undetectable, I'm not transmitting HIV. I cannot transmit HIV. So when did you first hear about U equals U? The the first time I heard about it, and it's, it's strange that you asked me this question today, James, because I have never really given this thought until just the last week because no one's ever asked me this question. No. Um, in all this time, no one's ever asked me where I first heard about it. 
I was volunteering at a bingo hall for the Sharp Foundation, which was a housing um, that does housing and respite care for people living with HIV here in, in Calgary, where I live. And I was on their board of directors. And so this is one of our little volunteer things that we did every month was at the bingo hall. And another volunteer came up to me and was having a conversation with me. And he had just been watching some of the international stuff that was going on at the time. Oh, I think it was in Geneva and the Swiss statement came out. And it really was the first, I guess, published piece around this potential that folks on effective treatment weren't transmitting HIV forward to other folks. It was very quiet. It was very, um, for lack of a better term, gatekept by folks, I think, at the time. But but for a few people out there, they read this and they caught it. They caught what was being said. Um, And this person came up to me at the bingo hall and said, do you see this thing about the Swiss statement, which I hadn't done yet? And started talking to me about it. And I went, oh, my God, wouldn't that be the most amazing thing if that was for real? And then bingo and back to where we were going and stuff like that. But I honestly know that is the very first time I ever heard about the science indicating that that was a possibility. Then I never heard about the U equals U message probably again significantly until the campaign started coming out of the U.S. with um, Bruce Richmond. And I just quickly grasped onto that. And this other person who eventually told me about it reconnected with me again. And then Bob Leahy out of Toronto there, he was really heavily involved in getting that message out through some of his podcasts and stuff he was doing. And it it just started steamrolling from there. We had Bruce Mitchman come out to our AGM. He spoke there. But even with all this momentum and stuff that's happening, it's it's still not being heard um, where it needs to be heard, I'm afraid. Yeah. You know, when I first heard it, I didn't know what to make of it because I thought there'd be parades and trumpets blowing and and there was, it seemed like deafening silence from, from the community. I thought it was a sick joke at first. And I think we saw the same thing with the hep C treatment that came mm. out. Like, here's the first virus we've been able to get a, like, you know, a virological sustained response from. And we're not screaming that and telling people that we have a new hepatitis C treatment that's like weeks and you can be treated without interfering it crickets yeah why isn't the science being shared why aren't we like screaming these incredible successes because they trickle down into COVID. don't even get me going there. <laughs> well i mean the, the u equals u message is infused with meaning for us for people living with hiv but not for the general population at all really no because i think they like their comfy little place of stigmatizing and making it not about them and having their comfy little spot and leaving the onus on people living with hiv including the criminalization aspect which i think needs to be i think u equals u clearly needs to be the weapon against that right yeah can you expand on that like wh- why what 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 do we have to do now the current legislation as it stands is based on the fact that we didn't know the science about undetectable equals untransmittable. And all those decisions were based on the possibility. And we know that if we look back at the records and all that info and put it under the science lens of today, we know that it wouldn't stand up right. based on U equals U. So in typical fashion, law, legislation, and criminalization is not keeping up with science as quickly because science moves very fast and has been moving very fast. So um, I don't want to poo-poo on, on legislation because I know it's a process and it doesn't change unless somebody gets charged and someone takes it through the chain. Right. And, and I don't want to be the one to do that. So I've got a lot of hills I'm going to die on. That is not it. <laughs> so I think there is opportunity to really look and revisit 
legislation and the legalization and criminalization of non-disclosure of HIV based under the new U equals to science that we know and has been proven and shouted globally. Right. So uh, it's not like it's a maybe, it's a for sure. So what's the one piece of advice you would give to someone who's been newly diagnosed with HIV? Oh, I guess my fastest thing is, is continuum of care, cascade of care. You've just been diagnosed, go see your physician, get your blood work done, find out where you're at, find out what medications are being offered to you when you're ready, if you're ready, when you're ready, start those medications as quickly as possible. I don't believe in anyone being forced into any kind of medication without with informed consent. I sat on CTAC for a long time fighting for informed consent around stuff. So um, please be ready, and but know they work and know they're effective and know they have little to almost no side effects anymore. So don't fall for the old stories from the old war horses like us that went through the early days of terrible side effects because it's not the same science. Get on those treatments. Stay on those treatments. They remain adherent. They're there. They work. They're amazing. You can have your life. You can have your career. I gave all that up. I gave all of those dreams up um, with my diagnosis day. And today, you don't have to give those up. You can plan a family. You can have children. You can get married. You can do all of these things that so many of us never got the chance to do. See, I'm getting emotional. (laughs) Um, Because you can have a life today with HIV that 30 years ago, we were told you could never have. And, And don't deny yourself that life. Do not deny yourself that happiness in life. Thank you, Mark. You're welcome. To get a fuller picture around the science and historical context of U equals U and treatment as prevention, I turn to the internationally renowned physician, professor, and researcher, Dr. Julio Montaner. So Julio, thank you for taking the time to come on podcast. Welcome. Thank you, James. It's my pleasure. So your work in HIV on highly active antiretroviral therapy or HEART and advocating for treatment as prevention strategy, sort of transformed living with HIV from a death sentence to a chronic livable condition. And it saved countless lives and changed, you know, it's changed everything. Uh, It's changed my life. Do you mind for me briefly explaining what treatment as prevention is for our audience and why the science behind it is such a game changer for people living with HIV? Uh, you know, the way I like to uh, describe the, this is as a bit of an evolution. Myself and a number of others, we were there when all of this started. There were very dark days, and, and we were focused on, on trying to fix the, the problem that it was immediately in front of us. I was actually training as a respiratory physician at the time, and so I got involved in all of this as a result of pneumocystis pneumonia, which was a huge killer back in the 80s. And since I was the the lowest member of the ranking hierarchy, (laughs) I was sent to the emergency to look after people with pneumocystis pneumonia, in and out and in and out. And it became almost a full-time job. We did good work uh, at the time, and we transformed pneumocystis pneumonia from a rapidly lethal sort of condition that, in fact, many people don't remember, but it, it was regarded by colleagues down south, particularly in the United States, as not worthy of admission to the ICU at one given point uh, because of the universal sort of lethal prognosis in those severe cases. Uh, We managed to change all of that and uh, and, and turn it around uh, so that it could be treated, it could be prevented. And, you know, that that was the real breakthrough, the the first breakthrough for us. 
However, it, it didn't mean much because uh, people would address the pneumocystis pneumonia with a new strategy that we came up with at the time, doesn't matter. But people would go on to die, often very painfully and a miserable condition uh, right. because of more pneumocystis pneumonia and other complications, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and that was basically the motivation for me and others to say, look, we have to do something different here. And, uh, and although my training was in respiratory medicine, I, I basically decided to reprofile my career in trying to develop uh, uh, what at the time was emerging field of antiretroviral therapy. While the early trials were uh, challenging, ACT, everybody remembers the, yeah. the controversies, et cetera, uh, I was blessed to have an opportunity to study the particular effects of ACT in our patients, uh, working closely with Mark Weinberg, John Rudy, and a number of others. And although we recognized that the benefits associated with the use of ACT were transient and resistance to the drug developed quickly, we were able to hypothesize that by combining antiretrovirals, we could get a, a greater efficacy. And that I must give Total credit to my colleagues in the TB field, including my father, who taught me how to fight drug resistance in tuberculosis, which is basically what I decided to apply to HIV. Right. And in the mid-80s, the notion was that resistance was unsurmountable. And we said, look, uh, let's give it a try. And you said sort of a TB approach. And that's when I went around the world trying to sort of shop for second and third drugs to to build those combination therapy protocols. Initially, two drugs proved to be better than one, but not good enough. And to my surprise, and Mark Weinberg's surprise, to be honest with you, by 1995, our clinical trial of an, using ACT, DDI, and Nevirapin, the INCAS trial, showed that we could suppress the replication of the virus and do so in a sustainable fashion. I often like to tell the anecdote when, when Mark Weinberg called me aside at a meeting in Montreal, uh, he was doing the virology for the trial that I was leading, the ACTDDI in the Verapin trial. And uh, he says, Julio, we have a problem. Uh, and I said, uh, Mark, what, what is the problem? He said, well, uh, I cannot grow the virus in your patients. You guys are messing up with the samples. There must be something wrong in the collection. Uh, and I'm telling you that with great respect to Mark right. to illustrate the fact that this was not even a consideration at the time. So I, I, I told Mark, listen, don't do anything. Don't say anything. Let me go back to Vancouver. I'll check everything and we'll see what happens. At the same time that I was doing that, John Sininski from Roche Molecular Systems had given us access to a new test that neither him nor us knew what it meant or what it was good for. But he was hoping that we would find an opportunity to test the test in one of the protocols that we were involved with. Those were very active research days. Lo and behold, that was a PCR test. And so I, I thought, look, we don't know what's going on here. Let's retest these samples using a second test and see if we can get a, a sense of where this is going. And to our surprise, still blinded, we were able to show that two arms of the study that had two drugs were having viral loads, which at the time we didn't know what it meant, but viral loads coming down and, and rebounding. But a third arm had a viral load that was suppressed and persistently so. That was a moment that, the Eureka moment that I always uh, remember and I'll never, you know, I'll never cease to enjoy just uh, talking about it. That led to a number of meetings with the various colleagues and the IAS, uh, USA, and so on and so forth. 
the Merco 35 trial with the ACT3TC and Indinavir uh, was reported you know, around the same time, early in, in 1996. And so um, we basically came together, we wrote the triple therapy guidelines, and we launched that in Vancouver at the International Ice Conference, which we basically reconfigured to be the coming out party of the uh, triple therapy. To be honest with you, we, we were satisfied. That was very good. Right. And I went on holidays uh, after the conference. It was the busiest year of my life. And I came back and I'm looking at uh, our data and I started to wonder what was going on here. The mor- mortality was going down, but incidence actually was not going up. And over the next year or so, we were seeing that the denominator, or in other words, the number of people living with HIV in the province was larger because people were stopped dying. Right. And the number of new infections were actually had decreased. And I started making some you know, um, back-of-the-envelope calculations, and I managed to convince myself that the decrease on the number of new infections was actually proportional to the number of people that were on treatment. And that was, if you thought that I had a Eureka moment in 1995, <laughs> by the year 2000, I started to convince myself that actually this was happening. And it took some time for us to be able to put all of the data together and articulate the whole notion. But we came out with a paper that we submitted to The Lancet. We coined the term treatment as prevention to, to basically argue that if we were to treat an individual with triple therapy, we would basically stop morbidity, age-related morbidity, stop premature death, and for no other investment, we would stop HIV transmission. And if we took that into a larger context to a region or a country or uh, the world, we could actually see that treatment could help us end the epidemic. And right. to be honest with you, when I presented this for the first time in 2006 at the Toronto International Conference, I actually had kept it a secret because I was invited to give a plenary on antiretroviral therapy. And the rumor mill started to work out in the ways that, you know, the rumor mill works. <laughs> and uh, I, get, I got a call from one of the organizers uh, weeks ahead of the conference Say, Julio, what is this that we're hearing that you're going to be talking about prevention? We ask you to talk about treatment. Say, oh, don't worry. I'm, a, I'm just going to update on treatment. That, it's all fine. It's all fine. The, all the way to uh, the large organizations in the world, and I'm not going to name names, uh, were seriously challenging this notion. And in fact, my boss got a call shortly before my presentation to send me a message that medicalization of prevention was extremely dangerous and uh, wow. I should refrain from moving in that direction. So I, I always remember two things happened at that conference in Toronto. Well, many happened, <laughs> but two uh, that were critical for me. One is that I, uh, I met with Stephen Lewis, and since then we became very close friends. I sat down with him at the lobby of a hotel across the convention center, and I explained to him what I was thinking about, what I was going to present. And he says, Julio, and at first he, he got upset, and he said, why, why are we not doing this yet? And I said, well, Stephen, I'm telling you about it because I, I need your help to make it happen. And then after we talk about it more, he said, well, I want you to lean on me because very important people are going to come after you. Uh, there is going to be, it's going to be a challenge to move this forward. But he was the first one that jumped on board. 
And when I finished my plenary presentation, I come down from the podium and there was a, a woman, Alison Lawton, uh, who approached me. She's from Vancouver, but I, I never met her before. And she said, Dr. Montana, I want to introduce myself. I want you to come with me and I want to introduce you to somebody that uh, is very interested in your presentation. I walked behind the, the curtains to a, a, a hidden room somewhere and she says, President Clinton, Julio Montana. Oh my goodness. So uh, the wow. president was at the conference <laughs> and uh, he basically wanted to pledge his support. I'm telling you this because while the scientific community had a lot of difficulty with the notion of uh, treatment as prevention, as I described, Stephen Lewis and Bill Clinton played a key role in making it possible for me to move this forward years ahead of all of the research and everything else happening. And of course, wow. I should give credit to Gordon Campbell, the premier here in British Columbia at the time. And, uh, and he famously said, Julio, with your brains and my money, we're going to fix this problem. And ever since we, uh, you know, we were encouraged by the government of all stripes, including the NDP now, uh, who are in power, to aggressively pursue this agenda, which has been really life-changing for all of us. Yeah. Now, in the film, you state basically that this we should have an AIDS-free world now, uh, that we don't need a cure or a vaccine, that we could reduce AIDS by 90% in our lifetime and with nothing much more than we already have. But we're not going to do this because we don't want to. Uh, why do we not have the will? So let me be clear. I don't want to come across saying that we don't need a cure or a vaccine okay. because uh, that would not be exactly what I'm at. And, I, and sometimes I can be a little bit uh, strong on my language and uh, <laughs> leave that impression. You know, we, we, we are involved in research for the cure, for the vaccine. Sabrina Broom, Mark Brockman, a number of people in our environment here are actively pursuing all of that. And I think that that's extremely important. Having said that, uh, your point is clear. And that's what I've been saying all along. We don't need to wait for a cure and a vaccine to actually dramatically change the course of the epidemic. The 1990-90 target that uh, I was the architect of and the promoter, uh, which is now the 95-95-95, and it was, I'm grateful for the fact that the UN has now endorsed both the 1990-90 for 2020 and subsequently, as of this uh, earlier this year, the 95-95-95 for 2025. If we were to implement this appropriately as we devise it, we would see at least a 90% reduction in HIV new infections, and virtually we would eliminate morbidity and mortality related to AIDS in every population affected so who, who are so treated. So we can do this. And in fact, British Columbia has long been doing this with extreme success, but it's not been replicated equally around the world because we're lacking the political will. Right. And we're lacking the political will because this is no longer a priority. And it's no longer a priority because the public mind has shifted onto other things. And I respect that. I, I respect that there are many priorities, but we cannot be like a 15-year-old that one day is focused on one thing and then we abandon that to focus on the, on the next trendy thing of the day. Yes, we are adults. We are thinking and mature human beings. We should be able to make a commitment and deliver on the, on the commitment while we address emerging new issues. So COVID is here and we cannot abandon HIV because we have COVID. And yet, to be honest with you, you'll see papers all over the place saying that COVID has actually put a dent on our HIV efforts. Well, that's not acceptable. Yeah. Did you think 
that with your eureka moments, did you think that it would become such a hard sell in a way? Yeah, you know, I, I was prepared for the pushback that the scientific community uh, uh, generated. Now, I say this with a great deal of respect to my colleagues, etc. But, you know, I, I've been trained as a scientist, as a clinician, as, uh, as an advocate. Uh, you know, I, I, I evolved through my life as a result of my lived experience, if you want. In fact, I, I always keep a, a quote uh, in my office that was given to me uh, by a very good friend of mine, Dr. Nora Volkov, uh, the director of the National Institute of Drug Abuse in the United States. Uh, she's been a strong supporter of our work all along. And uh, is from Austin Bradford Hill, uh, who interestingly enough is a pulmonary epidemiologist from back in the day. Uh, uh, and he is the, the guy that recognized using epidemiological work, uh, the link between smoking and lung disease. Mm. And so, so at a given point, you know, he was facing the kind of challenges that, that I was encountering. And so Nora gave me this uh, quote and says, Julio, you'll find uh, solace or support or sympathy on this, uh, on this quote. And basically the quote says something along the lines that there is a given point where the evidence is sufficient and the urgency is such that you need to act and you have to stop asking questions because the, the answer is obvious. <laughs> <laughs> and so... What I did different than many of my colleagues in the public health arena and the academic world is at a given point in 2006, I said, no, gentlemen, no, ladies, no, we have to stop asking questions. Treatment prevents death. Treatment prevents AIDS. We have enough evidence to say that it's going to prevent transmission. We don't need to explore that question to the ultimate kernel before we actually deliver on the promise of treatment for people who are living with HIV uh, with, with the known fact now that we will do the best that we can for them, but at the same time, halt the epidemic. Yeah. So do you think that there is something that we can do, the average person can do, the average person living with HIV can do to turn this corner? Yes, activism. Hmm. Uh, remember the good old days yeah. when... Uh, when there was no treatment, where there were, and, uh, and and there was a generation of activists that was very engaged, very vocal, and you know sometimes they were hard to deal with. I mean, I remember when we came up with hard, and we were accused that we were in the pocket of the pharmaceutical industry and act up, uh, demonstrate, and everything else. So they didn't get everything right all the time. But we need that energy and that force to move this forward. In my mind, and again, with a great deal of respect, but. But to be perfectly honest, the fact that we address the morbidity mortality challenge related to HIV, and now the transmission challenge for that matter with treatment, has allowed a generation of people living with HIV to move on and do other things, uh, you know, live a life that previously they couldn't even dream of. And that's great and is to be celebrated. At the same time, it's very hard to mobilize the community around the problem that is not being perceived as a, as a critical problem that it used to be. So in a way, we're victims of our own success. And what we need is to recruit whatever champions we can to ensure that this message doesn't die off because we're not going to end this problem if we don't go back to the level of commitment and uh, activism that we saw once upon a time. And I'm afraid that when I'm gone, there are not too many people lining behind me to do the work that I'm doing. Right. In fact, recruiting people to work in HIV/AIDS today uh, is a challenge because 
there is no funding. There is very little research going on. There is some research on cure and vaccine, but it's uh, still trial and error kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so uh, I fear that uh, this situation is not looking very good in general. Julio, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show today. And uh, on a personal note, I just want to thank you for all the work you've done. I appreciate it. Thank you, James. My pleasure. Okay, so now let's have some fun. I asked my guests the podcast five rapid fire questions. Let's hear what they had to say. First, Laura and Tico, followed by Mark and Julio. All right. Um, number one, test the waters or dive in deep? Test the waters. <laughs> <laughs> like I tested the waters with my answer. That's right. <laughs> I, my first reaction is dive in deep. Test the waters. Uh, I do a bit of both. <laughs> okay. I'll let you off there. Calling or texting? Texting. Texting, then calling. <laughs> Just to be sure. Calling. Uh, I prefer calling, but these days it's been overtaken by texting in my uh, professional life for the most part. Loose guidelines or clear directions? Loose guidelines. I agree. Loose, loose guidelines. Clear directions. Clear directions. See the future or change the past? I don't want to do either of those things. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I don't want to say change the past. Okay. Tico. I'd say change the future, but it's not an option. Ch um, look at the future, I guess. <laughs> That's a good one, though. See the future. Uh, change the future. <laughs> <laughs> you see, I don't, I don't, I don't do well uh, uh, with uh, rules. No, you see. don't, right? Okay. Well, that's worked for you. Uh, so arrive early or arrive late? What I want to do or what I often do? However you want to interpret that. I'm going to be aspirational. Arrive early. Okay. Arrive early. Arrive early. Excellent. <laughs> I'm going to say arrive late, but I've been married to my husband long enough now that I now arrive on time because <laughs> seven o'clock is seven o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> on time. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, thank you for playing along. I want to thank all of my guests for being on the show and a big shout out to the film Undetectable, officially launching today on World AIDS Day 2021. And it's available for free on demand on TELUS's YouTube channel. Thanks for listening. That's it for us this month. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you'll join us next time on podcast. And if you have any comments or questions or ideas for new episodes, send me an email at podcastforyou at gmail.com. That's the number four and the letter U. Podcast is produced by The Positive Effect, which is brought to you by Reach Nexus at the MAP Center for Urban Health Solutions. The Positive Effect is a facts-based, lived experience movement powered by people living with HIV and can be visited online at positiveeffect.org. Technical production is provided by David Grine of the Acme Podcasting Company in Toronto. 